Um, I've always been fascinated by cultures across the world, you know, the Egyptians, the Maya, the Chinese, and so on and so forth. But one of the one of the things that really piqued my interest is European culture, the ancient Romans, the pre-Romans, the Etruscans in Italy, uh, the Greeks, cultures like the South Iberian cultures in Spain, and, and obviously the cultures in the UK. So there are really two computers two competing ideas here. One is the idea that uh, humans are the same everywhere, therefore it's not a surprise that we see the same art, architecture, and symbolism everywhere in antiquity. And the other idea is there may have been, uh, hum humanity may be much, much older than we realize. There may have been uh, lost civilizations, a lost mother culture in antiquity. And what we're seeing is the remnants of that lost mother culture. The builders um, are called Freemasons. They're operative Masons. It's pretty mainstream. It's a pretty mainstream idea, I guess you could say now, that the Freemasons are the builders of the cathedrals, of the churches and the cathedrals, especially the high Gothic cathedrals of the medieval era. The reason why we see the triptych three-door entryway, not only in the temples of the pyramid cultures around the world, but also in modern cathedrals and churches and even castles, is because the Freemasons as the inheritors of this ancient, ancient wisdom tradition were encoding this wisdom of their ancestors, of all of our ancestors, into their designs and constructions. And they did it for two reasons, in my opinion. The first is to continue, keep the, keep the light glowing around this wisdom. And the second reason is, is because um, they wanted to endow their creations with this very highly spiritually charged um, symbol and architecture. I just want to tell people, I want to get the word out. To anybody that's interested, I want them to hear this and see, you know, to, to understand what these symbols mean and, and what really they where this triptych comes from and how important I think it is to you know to their lives. Our lives are often filled with worry and chaos as the media propagates one negative story after another, bringing divide and tension within topics such as politics, religion, and race relations. These stories fuel hatred and confusion while people continue to live in fear. 
Yet through all this negative energy, many are delivering messages of wisdom and hope, encouraging positive change, and that's something I'm aiming to do. My name is Roger Brooks, and I'm hopeful for our future, but we must be the change and not be a spectator in life, looking from the outside in. For as long as I could remember, I've been fascinated by people's stories. Stories speak to us, and since the beginning of time, the human race has prospered by passing down wisdom told through the essence of story. It's a way for people to aspire to become the hero they know they could be, seeing their higher self through the wisdom of others. What started out as a hobby has quickly turned into my life mission, and as I deliver a new guest each Sunday, I'll aim to prompt the questions you may be thinking, and through the power of listening, I'll allow the guest to speak and articulate their points of view in order to give you the headspace you need to realize your own hero's journey. We are one race. We are one people. Help spread the word about American Real, and together, let's make great stories go viral to inspire, enlighten, and empower those we love and the masses we hope to reach. It's one thing to think about our ancestors, but it's entirely different to consider the impact of ancient cultures and civilizations. On this week's episode of American Real, we welcome Madrid-based author, lecturer, filmmaker, and tour guide from New York City, Richard Casaro. In our first ever lecture-style podcast, Richard takes us through the presentation of his findings of the Triptych Temple, the Cycling of the Ages, and the God-Self Icon. He also uncovers his study of the Freemasons and how they've inherited the wisdom tradition of the ancients while diving into detail about the missing link. So sit back and relax for an episode of Discovery as I welcome Mr. Richard Casaro. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Richard Casaro. You've written books that offer rare insights into ancient megaliths, spirituality, mythology, magic, symbolism, secret societies, comparative religion, and occult archaeology. You have discussed your work on the History Channel and in documentary films, and your articles have appeared in print journals and web media around the globe, along with delivering lectures about your findings in the UK, Italy, Peru, Egypt, Spain, Mexico, Cyprus, and the US. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Roger. I appreciate it, and thanks for having me. I would just love to hear the backstory about why you moved from New York to Madrid. Well, <clears throat> there were lots of reasons why I decided to move. Um, one of the main reasons was because I really wanted to study European, ancient European culture. Um, I've always been fascinated by cultures across the world, you know, the Egyptians, the Maya, the Chinese, and so on and so forth. But one of the, one of the things that really piqued my interest is European culture, the ancient Romans, the pre-Romans, the Etruscans in Italy, uh, the Greeks, cultures like the Celtiberian cultures in Spain, and, and obviously the cultures in the UK. So I really wanted to spend some time focusing on studying the ancient cultures of Europe. That's really the main reason. But there were a lot of other reasons as well. And one of those being that uh, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist. I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist. But I really felt uncomfortable um, in the U.S. because of the systems of control that really 
um, seek to, in my opinion, seek to enslave us, uh, the banks, the political systems, the economic system. Um, really, it just got to the point where every, every hour, it's, every hour of the day seemed like you needed to be working in order to make money just to pay the basic expenses. And here in Europe, it's much different. Um, Europeans don't make as much money as the Americans do, but things here are much different in terms of uh, the healthcare system and uh, and other other uh, systems as well. So, I was able. I'm an entrepreneur, and I have a couple of small businesses in the U.S. And so, I was able to uh, sort of jump over the Atlantic Ocean and, and keep running those businesses in the U.S. while I'm focusing on my research, travel, and study here in Europe. So that, those were the main reasons. That's excellent. And does it in some ways feel like home to you? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I've been here four and a half years and it absolutely feels like home. Um, I love European people. Spanish people are very, very friendly, very nice, down to earth, uh, very simple people, very um, honest. And it's just been great. The food is great. The weather is great. The atmosphere is great. The music. I just love it. I love the people really are fantastic. I've made lots of friends and I've been able to travel across Spain, which is a fantastic thing for me. And so, yeah, it's just been all around, you know, A plus all around. That's wonderful. So let's uh, start out, if you don't mind, about discussing the ancient cultures uh, we see here. Um, for those people that are watching on video right now, they could see your, your three books that are up on the screen. Um, but you believe that all cultures, Chinese, Hindu, Egyptians, Maya, etc., share the same uh, wisdom tradition, right? That's what you call it, based on the idea that we each have an eternal soul that existed before we were born and that survives death, that those are your words. So if you can, Rich, let's get into it. Let's talk about this in your, in your discoveries. Absolutely. You know, I, in, in college, I studied philosophy. I actually minored in philosophy, in particular Greek philosophy. And one of my favorite Greek philosophers was Plato, also Socrates. And Throughout most of Plato's work, uh, he and Socrates talk about the difference between the eternal soul and the animal body. And that was really my first kind of uh, experience uh, listening to ancient people talking about the idea that we all have this eternal being within us that was never born and never dies. And what fascinated me most was that uh, the Greeks, these Greek philosophers, talked about the difference between the soul, which is who we really are, which is spiritual, and the body, which is kind of like a vehicle that we take on for a very short time in the material world. And that really fascinated me because, you know, Plato is just Plato. It's just a fantastic philosopher um, and Socrates as well. And just reading through all of the works made me open my eyes to this ancient wisdom. And then shortly after that, I began studying Hinduism. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and the Vedas, they talk about the same exact thing. And in many cases, it, it's word for word. Um, what I found in Hinduism is, is an almost exact match to what I'd found in uh, Greek philosophy. Hmm. So, you know, the idea, the idea of the soul, the difference between the spiritual soul, the eternal spiritual soul, and the temporary animal body, physical body. And so that kind of, you know, 
piqued my interest as well. How did, there really wasn't a great deal of contact at this time between the Greeks and the Hindus. So I wondered how it was that you know, Hindu philosophy and Greek philosophy were so parallel. And that kind of started me going and started me thinking, okay, well, what else is, you know, where else can we find this ancient wisdom? And I started to look in different places of the world, in Egypt, in China, and even in New World cultures, so-called New World cultures in Mesoamerica, like the Maya and the Aztec and the, uh, the Olmec before them, and even in South America, like the Inca and Princa cultures. And I started to see the symbolism. I started to see the, um, the holy books and the architecture was all kind of pointing to this idea that, again, we have an eternal soul and it was... It existed before we were born, and it will exist after we die. And the, a goal in life, the main goal in life, is to recognize that you are not the changing physical body, but you are that eternal being beneath the corporal clothing. And that, to me, is uh, something that you find in every single ancient spiritual tradition across the world. And it's fascinating to me, and that's kind of what got me started on this adventure. What I love about this conversation is that these discussions come up very frequently in the interviews that I do and the conversations that we have with ordinary people that are on their journey, right? Myself included. And this, this self-discovery of our soul being so much more than we could even fathom. There's a lot of people, it seems, Rich, that are on this path of discovery and Again, I would like to know, are, are, you, do you, are you in agreement with that, that it seems at least that based on your work and, and the work of you know, many others around the, around the globe, um, they may not go into this depth that you do, but it just seems that there's a, more of an awareness today. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, you know, the Renaissance in Europe, uh, the word Renaissance, as I'm sure you know, means rebirth, the rebirth of the ancient wisdom. And that's exactly what had happened there. It was a, it was a Renaissance. It was a rebirth of the ancient wisdom. The Europeans were rediscovering this ancient wisdom. And that resulted in a flourishing of the arts and music and art and sculpture and, and basically every, every facet of society. And in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, I see that happening today as well, thanks in part to the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of bad things are happening too, thanks to the Internet and social media. But um, try not to focus on the bad, but look at the good. And, and one of the good things is that um, people around the world are able to uh, access information much more quickly and they're able to find this information much more quickly than say in the 80s or the early 90s where you had to really be plugged into a local community or your local bookstore and um, now the information is freely available online and people are consuming the information more quickly they're understanding the information and in many cases they are following through and when I say following through I mean they're doing the meditation that's necessary they're doing the actual work the great work that's necessary in order for them to realize and visualize and see the eternity within themselves, the soul within themselves. So yeah, I definitely agree. So looking back at all these cultures, what is your, what is your theory on how so many different cultures from different places around the globe had these same, you know, findings 
Um, does it come from one source? Uh, is it is it through wisdom and time that these cultures develop? How does one again? Because our listeners, the average listener, the average person, how does one like me and, and others uh, get our heads around your studies and what that really means for us today? Yeah, scholars in general, they've noticed similarities between ancient cultures, and they generally explain these similarities by saying, well, humans are the same all over the world, so a staircase had to be made in order for somebody on the lower level to get to the higher level. So a staircase is something that's just uh, a necessary kind of uh, thing that was invented. It had nothing to do with any original source culture or any kind of... uh, uh, mother culture, and and I agree with that completely. Um, and they say the same thing about pyramids, for example. Pyramids are found all over the world, and they say, well, the idea of a pyramid—if you want to build something tall—the pyramid is really the only way that you can do that. And that's where I start to disagree. Um, a pyramid is a very strange structure to be found in different parts of the world, and that's one of the things that I recognized very early on. Uh, probably in the early 90s or actually late 80s, early 90s, um, I was fascinated by this idea that there are pyramids everywhere, uh, all over the world, China and India and in North America, South America, Middle America. Um, so I wondered, you know, is it really the fact that we're all human and there's something about the pyramid structure that we're naturally attracted to and that's why ancient cultures built pyramids? or Or there's kind of another idea that's been circulating not just now and not just in the past hundred years but in the past few hundred years and that idea is that there the ancient cultures that we see today are really the children of a much older and a much greater mother culture that in some way uh, it no longer exists and we no longer have a record of it. And whether you call this mother culture Atlantis, you know, the the story of Atlantis where there was this uh, highly advanced race of humans living on an island called Atlantis in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but it sank beneath the waves. Survivors fled to different parts of the world, taking their pyramid religion with them, and that's why we see pyramids in the earliest, so-called earliest cultures, whether you call it Atlantis or there's, there's other myths that are very similar, the Tower of Babel, for example, where there was a, a united humanity in very ancient times, but due to some cataclysmic event, um, there was a dispersal around the world of this higher humanity, and this dispersal led to the confusion of tongues, the origins of different languages, and Again, even with this story, we can see that there was a kind of a source culture, and through due to some cataclysm, this source culture was uh, separated. Different, you know, it, it kind of spread out to different parts of the world, and that might be an explanation as to why we see the same structures like pyramids everywhere as well. So there are really two compu- two competing ideas here. One is the idea that. Uh, humans are the same everywhere. Therefore, it's not a surprise that we see the same art, architecture, and symbolism everywhere in antiquity. And the other idea is there may have been, uh, humanity may be much, much older than we realize. There may have been uh, lost civilizations, a lost mother culture in antiquity. And what we're seeing is the remnants of that lost mother culture. When we look at pyramids all around the world, we're seeing the remnants. We're seeing the children of that greater mother culture. 
So there's, there's really the two competing ideas. And that's something I talk about a lot in my research. And I just flipped the, to the next slide. Um, as you can see here, this is a, a, a comparison of the art and architecture in the Americas on the left-hand side, which scholars called the New World, and in Egypt in the so-called Old World. And these are just three very basic comparisons. But as you can see on top, the step pyramids uh, were very similar. In the middle, the corbel vault arches were a spot-on match. And even the concept of mummification was known on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, while I can understand that a staircase might be necessary and it doesn't have to be uh, the result of a mother culture, things like step pyramids, corbel vault architecture, and mummification, that's a pretty, these are pretty detailed um, topics here, detailed things. I don't necessarily believe that uh, just because we're all humans, we all feel the need to build these things or to mummify our dead. I think this is the result of um, a higher wisdom that in some way ancient cultures around the world were all uh, keyed into and that's in, since then been lost in our time. What exactly does a pyramid represent? Mm. What is it? That's a tough question because nobody really knows. I mean, you know, we know there are really two ideas here at play. Um, most scholars say that the pyramids were used, for example, the Egyptian pyramids, they were funerary monuments. Um, you know, the pharaohs were buried inside the pyramids. And, you know, I'm not saying they weren't, but there's also evidence that they were ceremonial. Uh, that they were ritualistic, that, um, you know, for example, imagine some, imagine that uh, a culture 2,000 years from now, uh, archaeologists dig up a cathedral and they find some bones in the cathedral. And they say, well, the cathedral was used as a cemetery. And that's not entirely true. It was ritualistic as well. So I think that's, for example, what we're seeing in the Egyptian pyramids where it's very possible that they were used to inter the uh, to inter the dead, but I also believe that they the pyramids were used for ritualistic purposes. Oh wow, that's fa I've never never put that together. And again, I think we talked a little bit before we started. I've been to Italy a few times, and you know I'm always fascinated with going into the churches. So I just I kind of picture that right. So back you know in the ancient world, these pyramids. Maybe they that that's where they worshipped, or that's where they went, and 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 it wasn't just for for the, burying the dead. Yep, yep. And it's not it's not just in Egypt. I mean, there's pyramids again all around the world, and in many cases, it's true that you know dead bodies have been found interred inside the pyramids or below the pyramids, and that's very true. However, there's also a tremendous amount of evidence that they were also used for ritualistic purposes. So the idea is, uh, for me. A pyramid uh, symbolizes the interaction between our world and the next world. There's a lot of ancestor worship in ancient cultures. And um, ancients believed that they were contacting the ancestors in a lot of their rituals. Um, and so the pyramid might be a kind of gateway between our world and the next world. And I think in when ancient peoples were performing their rituals at the pyramids, I think in some way they were not only paying reverence to the ancestors, but they were also recognizing their own spirituality. And they were also um, sort of 
becoming, coming into communion with their own higher self, their own spiritual self. I watch that show quite frequently on the History Channel, Ancient Aliens. Um, curious about your take on that. Is this similar into some of those theories or, or not? Not really. I was actually on Ancient Aliens and I don't regret it. I just wanted to explain to them that I, I did not believe in the Ancient Alien theory. Um, I think they put on a good show. It's interesting. It's entertaining. But, you know, their main focus is on the idea that uh, that these pyramids and a lot of these cultures and a lot of the similarities between cultures are the result of contacts with alien beings. And I don't believe that. I I I once believed that many, many years ago in my teens and early 20s. But, um, you know, it, it's a very big leap that you have to make in order to, there's really no evidence for it, number one, no solid evidence, no scientific evidence. And that's not to say that I don't believe that we're being visited by aliens or that aliens don't exist. I absolutely believe that, you know, we are being visited. Um, and we may even be an experiment um, for, for these aliens, but I don't believe that our ancient cultures were in contact with aliens. And I don't believe that that's a good way to explain these ancient monuments around the world, like pyramids and cobalt vault arches and mummification. I don't see that as being a viable solution. Okay. I see instead humans evolving into these, these roles rather. I changed to the next slide. Um, so yeah, this is an one idea to give an example of what scholars once believed. And this, and this is important to emphasize that scholars and especially the Victorian era scholars, they actually believed in this Atlantis theory. Uh, they believed that there was a continent, as Plato suggested, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It was called Atlantis. It was a higher civilization. It was a spiritual civilization. But due to their materializing tendencies, in other words, uh, due to them identifying not with the higher spiritual self, but with the lower animal self, this caused a digression in the race. And eventually there was a cataclysm that resulted in the sinking of Atlantis and the spreading of uh, the Atlantean religion, if you will, to different parts of the world. And that's sort of this image that I have here. And this, again, it's, it's just an idea uh, to explain the parallels. It's not something that I, I stand by because we have no evidence of Atlantis itself. There's no evidence that there was actually a continent called Atlantis. However, it's a folktale and it's a memory, perhaps, of something that may have existed. In, at any rate, it's a good way to explain the parallels. There was an advanced mother culture on different uh, in the Atlantic Ocean, and the sinking of it caused this advanced mother culture's religion and wisdom to spread to different parts of the world. And here's an example. There's also something called the Golden Age, which is interesting as well. Um, we didn't talk about this, but ancient cultures believed that in the ancient past, there was a golden age, what they called a golden age. And they believed that humans were more advanced in this golden age. Now, I'm not talking about technologically more advanced. I'm talking about spiritually more advanced, psychologically more advanced. Uh, when I look around today, I don't see a very strong spiritual people in the world. I don't see a very strong psychological people in the world. I see people who are um, not as well-educated, not as moral, not as spiritual, um, and that's unfortunate. But when I look at ancient cultures, I see the exact opposite. I see a people who were highly advanced, highly spiritual, and in many ways much more moral than we are today. And 
when I think of this idea, this myth of the golden age, it's actually not a myth in Hinduism, for example. They talk about the yuga cycles. They say that there are four yuga cycles. It starts off with the golden age. And then after some time, the golden age weakens and humans go through what's called the silver age, which is not as strong as the golden age. Humans are not as spiritual, not as psychologically intelligent, etc. Then after some time, the silver age falls into the bronze age. And then after that, it falls into the Kali Yuga age, the worst age of all, where there's greed, violence, wars, etc. And according to this ancient Yuga cycle idea of the Hindus, we are currently living in the Kali Yuga age. Most Hindus believe that right now we're living in the worst of these four ages. And that makes a lot of sense to me because, again, when I look at the ancients, I see this kind of same wisdom tradition all around the world. And then when I look today, I see a much weaker and a much more materialistic and animalistic people. The ancient Hindus called the, these the Yuga cycles. The Golden Age was the Satya Yuga. The Silver Age was the Treta Yuga. The Bronze Age was the Dwapara Yuga. And here we are today in the uh, worst age of all, the Kali Yuga. And what's most interesting here is that the Greeks and the Romans also believed in the Golden Age. And they also had these kind of, uh, this idea of using metals in decreasing value to mark the falling of the ages. Um, and so, for example, the Greek poet Hesiod, the Roman poet Ovid, um, I believe Herodotus as well, they talked about this idea of, Humans were once in the golden age, and we've now fallen from that great height, and here we are into a, in, a, in a much lower age. And so I started to, again, the golden age is like the Tower of Babel story, like the Atlantis story. It matches that same idea that we've fallen from a very great height, and, um, and that kind of matches what I'm pointing to in the similarities of art, architecture, religion, spiritual traditions in antiquity. And this is an example of it here. Uh, again, on the left side, we have Mexico. On the right side, we have Egypt. And not only did the Maya in Mexico and the Egyptians in Egypt build parallel step pyramids, but as we can see here in this photo, they also used the serpent symbol. Stone, they built stone serpents within a stone's throw of those pyramids. And, and you know, here we're, we're getting into stuff that th this is very difficult to explain away i can understand where a scholar might explain the pyramid away when we start talking about step pyramids it becomes a little bit more difficult and then when we start looking at the stone serpents that are very visible very close to those step pyramids i think it's a little it's getting a little bit more difficult to explain these parallels away now the kali yuga age which uh, you, you mentioned we many people or hindus think we're in that age at this point when do you think approximately that would have started? Are we going back 500 years, 1,000 years? How, how, many, how many years, just to give us some perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, a lot of people believe, um, Hindus and, and other people who study this, believe that it's tied into the uh, zodiac sign, uh, the zodiac, where we have the 12 ages of the zodiac spinning around, each one being about 2,500 years each. I talk in generalities because it's just much easier. It's hard to remember exact numbers and dates for me. So, And I don't really know the answer to the question that you're asking, but when I think about it, I look at it like this. Uh, the entire 
procession of the equinoxes takes around 26,000 years, around 26,000 years okay. or 24,000 years. Um, so each sign of the Zodiac can be thought of as um, one twelfth of the great year. Plato called this the great year, uh, one full procession cycle of the equinox. So, in one entire processional cycle of the equinox, I think that encompasses a golden age and a dark age. And so I would say that humans rise and fall over the course of 24,000 years or 26,000 years, an entire processional cycle, thereby running the gamut, going across all 12 signs of the zodiac. And so um, when Plato talked about Atlantis, and, um, and this is not uh, definite, but um, a lot of researchers since Plato have kind of used the number, used the date 10,000 or 10,500 BC as to when Atlantis existed. And that's about half of the processional cycle away from where we wow. are today. So it looks like that that was the golden age, and here we are half a processional cycle away in the dark age. So I would guess, and this is just a guess, and you know, I'm not, uh, I haven't really, f I've been doing research on it, but I haven't put in, put together enough research to actually say I found something important here. Um, but I think I'm getting closer. I would say that um, the golden age was around 12,000 BC or 10,000 BC. We're now in the dark age, and. Um, and that's the way I see it. Again, um, parallels that we see in the Americas on the left, in Africa in the middle, in Asia uh, on the right. I did a lot of research in the late 80s and early 90s into the occult and esoteric traditions, secret societies, and so on. And what, uh, what really stuck out in my mind was that uh, there actually is a tradition where a lot of past authors, and I'm talking about authors like um, Alistair Crowley, John Dee, Dion Fortune, Helena Blavatsky, Gurdjieff, even uh, Alan Watts and Joseph Campbell in, in modern times, where they actually point to um, what's called the perennial philosophy. And this is a term used to describe, for lack of a better word, the universal religion that um, that we're talking about here, this uh, dichotomy between the, the soul and the body, uh, and so on and so forth. And I began to say, in, in my mind, I began to link the perennial philosophy to these ancient cultures, because I think that they all practiced the perennial philosophy. And so um, in my travels, what I'd found was what I call the triptych temple, the three-door temple, um, and there's a backstory to this. I don't want to really get too much into it. But while I was in college, I had these discussions with my professors and I spoke with archaeologists and historians and museum cur curators and Egyptologists. And essentially what they told me is, look, you can have a great you have a great theory. You know, these pyramids are all related and so on and so forth. But really what you need to do is prove it. You need to find evidence for this. And so I thought, hey, I, you know, I could do that. <laughs> So I started traveling. I went to different parts of the world. I went to Egypt. I went to Mexico, for example. And what I'd found was something that no scholar or archaeologist had found before. And that is that not only the pyramids are the same, uh, but as you can see here, the pyramid builders also built the same shaped temples. And these temples all had three doorways at the entrance. 
And the doorway in the middle was usually wider and sometimes taller and wider than the twin doors flanking it. And I was surprised, and I spent many years uh, following up on this uh, after I'd come home from my travels, came back to New York City. I spoke with Egyptologists, historians, professors. Nobody had heard of it. Nobody could point me to in the direction of any scholar or any author, um, academic or not, who had talked about this. So this is the basis of my, my first book, Written in Stone, where I explain the discovery of what I call, and I coined this term, triptych temples. And I call them triptychs because they look like the Renaissance triptych paintings um, with the sort of three frames and the frame in the middle being slightly wider and sometimes slightly taller. I started yes. to call these triptych temples. And, um, and it's not just an aesthetic similarity over the course of many years. I was able to show how these triptych temples all point to the same universal religion or perennial philosophy that was uh, possessed by these ancient cultures, by these ancient pyramid building cultures. And this, uh, in a nutshell, the triptych temple is just a very um, visual way to show the difference between the spiritual soul and the physical body. A lot more to it than that, but... Um, you know, it's, it's a little difficult to explain and get into. I have some more slides as we go and I can, I can get into that a little bit. No. And I encourage people the the YouTube video that I uh, mentioned early on, uh, you went into really good detail about that. And, and it's interesting because since, since I watched that video, I've been looking around even in my local area and many of the churches have the three doors, you know, it's just, it's incredible once something, you know, becomes, um, you know, brought to your attention, you start to notice these things. Yeah. And the builders of the churches, and this is part of my book as well. And part of my research, the builders um, are called Freemasons. They are operative Masons. Um, and Freemasonry is a so-called secret society. It's actually a fraternal order, fraternal organization. Uh, it's existed for hundreds of years. And in my opinion, a lot longer than that, but um, it's pretty mainstream. It's a pretty mainstream idea, I guess you could say now, that the Freemasons are the builders of the cathedrals, of the churches and the cathedrals, especially the high Gothic cathedrals of the medieval era. And in my opinion, and what I found and what I show in my research is that these Freemasons understood the perennial philosophy of antiquity. They had inherited this universal tradition of these ancient cultures like the Maya, the Egyptians, the Hindus, the the Greeks, the Chinese, etc. And Freemasonry was a storehouse of this ancient wisdom. And not only that, but the Freemasons encoded this wisdom in the buildings that they designed and constructed. And the main symbol of that is this triptych three-door entryway. And the reason why we see the triptych three-door entryway, not only in the temples of the pyramid cultures around the world, but also in modern cathedrals and churches and even castles, is because the Freemasons, as the inheritors of this ancient, ancient wisdom tradition, were encoding this wisdom of their ancestors, of all of our ancestors, into their designs and constructions. And they did it for two reasons, in my opinion. The first is to continue, keep the, keep the light glowing around this wisdom. And the second reason is, is because um, they wanted to endow their creations with this very highly spiritually charged um, symbol and architecture. 
And so you'll see it in churches and in cathedrals, and you'll also see it in other Masonic buildings. For example, if you look at post offices, if you look at schools, if you look at government buildings, um, and, a, and a tremendous amount of this in Washington, D.C., you'll see the triptych almost everywhere. And, and that's, uh, again, because the Freemasons were the builders, they were the designers, and they were encoding this very important perennial philosophy or ancient wisdom into their instructions. As you were doing your, your research around this, was there an aha moment where it just kind of all came together and, and you just, you know, you felt the, the validity of, of, of your theory? Yes, absolutely. And I'm actually flipping through and I'm trying to find the slide for that aha moment. <laughs> I don't know if I actually have it here, but I'll flip back. There was an aha moment. When I had come back from my initial travels, I, um, I didn't real, I didn't know who the Freemasons were. This is 1996, 1997. Um, the, the internet was just starting up, you know, AOL dial up, you've got mail, that type of stuff. <laughs> A page took about three minutes to download. You remember those days? Oh, sure. And so uh, I didn't even, I'd never heard of the Freemasons before. And uh, I was in New York City. I was in front of a building called Rockefeller Center, where they put the Christmas tree up every year. And I was, at that point, I had already started noticing tri uh, triptychs in modern buildings, but I wasn't sure what that was about. I, I kind of started getting the feeling that I wasn't the only person in modern times to understand that ancient pyramid cultures built these triptych temples. And I thought to myself, well, somebody in modern times is building these triptychs. And I thought they were memorials to this ancient, you know, triptych wisdom, this ancient worldwide wisdom. And then I was in Rockefeller, I was in front of Rockefeller Center and I saw the triptych right at the entryway. And not only that, but uh, the, there are three portraits or pictures or images that fill the three doors of the triptych in the middle door there's a god symbol and on the left and right doors there are male and female symbols a male on the right and a female on the left mm. and at the time i was putting together what the triptych actually means it actually is a symbol of the balance of opposites or the reconciliation of opposites the harmony of opposites the marriage of the opposites and male and female are obviously uh, opposites and they're the key opposites and this is something that I remembered from my uh, college prof college uh, days where the Greeks and the Hindus talked about this idea that everything in creation is made of pairs of opposites and these are symbolized by the sun and the moon the sun obviously symbolizes the day and the moon symbolizes the night and the day symbolizes light the sun light and heat and warmth and the moon symbolizes the night the darkness and cold and so on and the sun is usually symbolized by a male figure and the moon by a female figure and there i was in front of rockefeller center seeing that in the middle door of the triptych was this god symbol um, and in the left and the right doors were these opposite symbols and it kind of snapped in it that was kind of my aha moment where i said okay this is not only a triptych but whoever designed and built this triptych knew exactly what the triptych means and the god in the center is the human soul and this is something that i learned in the occult and in, in esoteric philosophy as well um, we, and I, I hesitate to say this, but uh, this is really what it's about. You know, our soul, being that our soul is eternal, our soul is like a God. 
uh, we are gods. And this is really the bottom line. We are gods having a dream that we are merely humans. And earlier you talked about our full potential as humans and we don't recognize the depths of our being. That's the depths of our being. Our soul is really a God. And this isn't Richard Cassaro talking. This is me explaining um, thousands and thousands of years of ancient wisdom, ancient Hindu wisdom, uh, Jainism, Buddhism. Um, you know, in the East, this wisdom is really available on the surface. In the Western cultures, Western religions, it's esoteric. It's hidden beneath in Judaism and Christianity and Islam. It's not on the surface of those religions. Uh, in Judaism, you have to look at the Kabbalah to find this wisdom. In Christianity, you have to look deeper uh, at Gnosticism to find this wisdom. And in Islam, you have to look at Sufism to find this wisdom. However, in the Eastern traditions, Jainism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and there's a you know, long list more, this idea that humans are really souls and souls are really gods of uh, having a human experience is right on the surface. It's available right on the surface. And so uh, I kind of put it all together, not in that moment, but it was in that moment that I realized that there was, uh, that the builders of modern triptychs were really keyed in, not only on the triptych, but on what the triptych really means. And I uh, don't want to talk too much more about it, but in the hands of the God, in the middle door of the triptych, there was a compass, mm. a go giant golden compass. And that compass eventually led me to Freemasonry. As you know, Freemasonry is the, uh, has the compass and the square as their key symbols. Right. And so the compass in the hands of that God, I uh, eventually realized that that was a Masonic symbol and that the designers and builders of Rockefeller Center were Freemasons. And they had encoded this balance of opposites or harmony of opposites wisdom onto the facade of this very important building. Rich, that is just, I can't tell you how incredible what you just explained is. And I'm, 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 I'm not just saying that. It is incredible what you discovered, but it also sounds like it's, it's been there, right? So the Freemasons obviously knew what they were doing, as you say, inherited it, all this. But the fact that you connected the dots is just remarkable. I'm flabbergasted. Thanks. Yeah. And I actually joined the Freemasons after that. I had after, you know, doing a lot of research on the Freemasons. This is kind of not very nice, but I figured, wow, you know, I'm going to join this fraternal organization and I'm going to really find everything now. And this is great. And I felt like I finally found my place in the world, went down to the 23rd Street Masonic Lodge in New York City. Uh, I spoke to them. I told them how enthusiastic I was and they saw it and they were excited and uh, but after being admitted and after joining, I realized that nobody, no Masons that I had spoke with knew anything about this. Um, none of the lower Masons, none of the higher up Masons, none of the, the big, the big shots. And I went into detail and showed them no idea this. And then I realized that that's when I realized that Masonry today is, is just, uh, a shadow of its former glory. In some way, the Masons have lost all their wisdom. And, um, and, and they even admit it. They even admit that. It's not, you know, you talk to a Mason, they say, we have no idea what the rituals are about. Uh, most of the symbolism is explained away in a very uh, Mickey Mouse kind of, uh, oh, this is a, this sim the, the 
compass is a symbol of doing good in the world and the square is to square your actions and it's very uh, mundane and boring and and really meant for a second grader um, what's interesting though and I, I pardon the interruption no what they're, they're actually passing down crucial information they just have no idea it sounds like what they're passing down you know, after doing a lot of research, what, the conclusion I came to was the actual builders up until about the 1850s or 1860s or 1840s, I think there was, well, I don't think, I know there was a conflagration. There was a ma there was major turmoil in the United States surrounding Freemasonry due to the so-called Morgan affair. And I don't want to get into it too much. Anybody can go on Wikipedia and look it up, but Surrounding, there was supposedly a, a William Morgan. He was supposedly murdered by the Freemasons after he threatened to reveal their secrets. As a result of this incident, um, there was a major backlash against Freemasonry. It lasted for 30 or 40 years. A lot of the lodges in the U.S. closed down. Masons quit the lodges. Uh, there was even a third uh, party in the U.S. Uh, political system called the Anti-Masonry Party. Um, but then in the 1870s, Freemasonry reemerged. However, when it reemerged, it was much more centralized. It was much more controlled. And in my opinion, when it reemerged, it reemerged without the true wisdom. Uh, and in my opinion, it was, this wisdom was purposely expunged from the order, purposely stolen from the order. And the reason it was stolen, in my opinion, is because... Uh, the higher-ups, the elite, the so-called 1%, as we call them today, didn't want this wisdom in the hands of just anybody. They knew that when you have this wisdom, you're no longer a follower. You recognize the power within yourself. You recognize the divinity within yourself, the eternity within yourself, and you realize that you don't need uh, really anybody to, besides yourself to, to, to live, to exist, to thrive, to flourish. And so they didn't want this wisdom in the hands of just anybody. And in my opinion, they devised this so-called Morgan affair. I believe it was a, f a false flag operation. And I believe that uh, Freemasonry before the Morgan affair was a authentic Freemasonry where the fought, where the Masons were initiated into true authentic wisdom. Whereas Masonry after the Morgan affair uh, became just a Mickey Mouse club where uh, very few people understood the true wisdom and the true meaning of the symbols and the architecture and so on and so forth. Your discovery of the uh, God self icon, is that, is that related to the triptych temple? It is. Yeah. Uh, I'll just go through some of these slides very quickly and we'll get to the God self icon just for the, for the listeners who are uh, watching this on YouTube. Um, the triptych is here are, the triptych is found all around the world among the pyramid cultures. And in this slide, for example, up top, you can see we are at, um, we're at Uxmal in Mexico. And we see that uh, there's a pyramid here in the background. And in the foreground is a temple, a triptych temple. Again, door in the middle, wider than the two doors flanking it. And this matches up what we see in Egypt and Cambodia. And just to explain that it's not just one temple. The Maya didn't just build one triptych temple. They built dozens and dozens and dozens of triptych temples. Therefore, it's very clear that the triptych meant something crucially, critically important to the Maya. And that's an example that I have on screen right now, where I just show eight examples right now. Uh, I think eight should suffice, though. That's a, that's a good number. 
Um, and then again, this is not just in Mexico, but in different parts of the world. Uh, here we have China, Cambodia, Indonesia, India, um, and China. Did I say China? Yes. <laughs> Egypt. Okay, so you know, this is just to, to show that uh, what the, the different manifestations of the triptych temples in the past few thousand years, all around the world. Um, uh, here's a perennial philosophy quote from Alan Griffiths. This, where this is again just pointing to this idea uh, that the perennial philosophy uh, that there was a universal religion. He says the perennial philosophy is a perspective in modern spirituality that views all of the world's religious traditions as sharing a single metaphysical truth or origin from which all esoteric and exoteric knowledge and doctrine has grown. Um, and here's from Aldous Huxley. He actually wrote a book. Huxley wrote a book called The Perennial Philosophy. And Huxley says, rudiments of the perennial philosophy may be found among the traditional lore of primitive peoples in every region of the world. And so I wanted to just explain that um, and we'll move on to the, uh, to the God self icon, which you just asked. But very quickly here, let's stop off very quickly here and show what I'm saying is in complete agreement with scholarship. Uh, first of all, what I'm showing, the triptych temples obviously exist. And what I've done here in this slide is to show that the triptych temples built by these pyramid cultures and the idea that these triptych temples stand for the marriage of opposites, the balance of opposites, is shown here in these quotes. Uh, on the left, the uh, Mercedes de la Garza, she says, the basic concept of the Maya religion and that of Mesoamerica in general is harmony of opposites. And in the middle, the quote from an Egyptian uh, lecturer, Henri Frankfurt, he says, the deeply rooted Egyptian tendency is to understand the world as a series of pairs of contrasts balanced in unchanging equilibrium. Egyptian thought is that a totality comprises opposites. And on the right-hand side, talking about Hinduism, the scholar Stephen Rosen says, the ability to see the harmony is nowhere more prominent than in Indian theology. Transcending of all pairs of opposites is central to Hindu thought. And so, what I've done here is to show that the scholars of these cultures themselves admit that the concept of the balance of opposites or harmony of opposites is the chief wisdom tradition of those cultures. So really all I'm doing is matching things up. I'm not inventing anything. Uh, Aleister Crowley, famous magician of the early 20th century. Uh, the great work is the uniting of opposites. Bam. You know, he just says it right there in one very simple sentence. Um, and you asked about the God self icon, and I'm going to flip through here and try to get to uh, very quickly for those watching. Here's the uh, Rockefeller Center depiction where we talk, which we just talked about a minute ago, uh, where we have this massive triptych um, at the entrance of Rockefeller Center. And here's a close up where we have, again, the male on the right side, the female on the left side, and the God in the middle, symbolizing the God within us, the eternal soul within us, which was never born and never dies. And here's the golden compass in the hands. So yeah. So this, this was your aha moment. You, that was the aha moment, yeah. When you saw this, give us a little detail on, on what was going through your mind. Yeah, I felt destiny and I felt like a part of history. And more overwhelming than anything else, I felt like I wanted to tell people. I felt like I wanted to get the word out and explain to people that there's so much more going on 
in modern architecture, just as one thing in modern architecture, then you realize, you know, most people that walk through, how many thousands of people walk through there every day in and out of that building and have no idea what this means. Um, and it's an important, I mean, it's, this is the key wisdom. This is the great work. This is the great wisdom of antiquity and it's the great work of human beings and yet we're all running around trying to make a dollar and trying to fulfill our dreams and desires. And um, I think if we just stop and listen to the ancient wisdom, we would have a much different society, a much better society. I don't want to change the world or anything like that. I mean, but while I was looking at this, the aha moment, which I had, I felt like I just want to tell people, I want to get the word out to anybody that's interested. I want them to hear this and see, you know, to, to understand what these symbols mean and, and what really they, where this triptych comes from and how important I think it is to, you know, to their lives. Just incredible. So continuing on, um, while I was doing the research, you know, I found that it wasn't just the Freemasons, but there were other so-called secret societies that used the triptych in their entrances. And that's why I call this slide the lost ancient universal religion of the triptych temple, oh, sorry, was the founding wisdom of all secret societies. That's because, as you can see here on the left, that's the Skull and Bones entrance at Yale University. The Skull and Bones is a collegiate secret society, um, and it's an offshoot of the Freemasons. And they have the triptych three-door entryway right on the facade of their of their headquarters it's called the tomb. They call it the tomb. And on on this slide here, these are the Shriners and other offshoot of the Freemasons. This is their headquarters in Washington, D.C. Again, a massive triptych right, in, right there in the, on the face of the headquarters. This is a Masonic Lodge right here with the triptych. And here uh, on the far right is the entrance to the Knights of Pythias Secret Society headquarters in New York City. Um, it's no longer their headquarters now. It's just a private building, but they kept the three-door triptych entrance. And so... Uh, again, you know, um, not just the Freemasons, but modern secret societies in general understood and retained this ancient wisdom of the triptych temple of the pyramid builders. And that's what I wanted to show in this slide. So the God Self icon is, um, and this is the cover of my book, The Missing Link, where I, I really went into detail about it in The Missing Link. I first published it in my 2011 book, Written in Stone. I devoted an entire chapter to this concept, which I call the God Self icon. And really all it is, is it's a symbol found all around the world, and especially among the pyramid cultures and the triptych building cultures. Actually, the triptych building cultures were the pyramid cultures. So um, I devoted a chapter to it, and, in, and I called it the God Self Icon. And what I'd found was, and you could see these, some of them here on the cover of the book on the right, um, in the old world, in cultures like the, the scholars who study the Babylonians, the Sumerians, um, the Iranian cultures, and the cultures in Europe, like the Greeks and Romans and the Etruscans. And they noticed that all of these cultures shared this symbol. And they called it the master of animals or the goddess of animals or the mistress of animals. And the reason is because it was the same symbol. It's essentially a human or anthropomorphic figure with both arms extended outward, holding symmetrical objects in each hand. And what I found was in my travels to South America, I've been to Peru 
Um, and I've found that in most of the museums and in most of the artifacts, they have the very same symbol. Only there, they call it the staff god. And no scholar or archaeologist or researcher has ever connected the two. And that's what I did in this chapter in Written in Stone. And I actually published some articles on it, and I got it. they went viral very quickly, and everybody that contacted me said, you should write a book about it. And that's what I decided to do. That's the missing link. Uh, just focused on this one symbol. And really all it is, it's telling us the same information as the triptych temple tells us, namely the harmony of opposites. Yes. The right, yeah, the, the right hand and the left hand. See, in the occult, in ancient cultures, the occult tradition and the esoteric tradition have inherited the wisdom of ancient cultures. Ancient cultures all over the world all agreed that the human body is a microcosm of the universe. And the universe is made up of duality. Again, the sun and the moon, the light and the dark, the male and the female, the good and the evil, and so on and so forth. So because we're a microcosm of that macrocosm, our physical bodies also are a duality made up of the sun and the moon, the light and the dark, and so on and so forth. So the way they looked at it was the human body is symmetrical. It's really two sides put together, the right side and the left side. They believed our right side is our sun side, our solar side, our male side, and our left side is our lunar side, our moon side, our, our female side. So in looking at this God self icon, it's very clear that the extension of the twin arms symmetrically at either side was to convey this concept of duality. The holding of symmetrical objects further denotes this concept of duality or polarity or whatever you want to call it. And the idea that there's three, that when these two arms are extended holding these symmetrical objects, that it actually forms a trinity. Um, there's a central unit, which is the center door of the triptych. And then there's the two outer doors of the triptych, which are symbolized by the left and right hands holding symmetrical objects. So essentially what I've found, and there's a lot more, there's a lot of research that goes into this, and there's a lot of uh, facts that I explain in my books to back up this claim. What we're essentially seeing with the, the God self icon, and I call it the God self icon, I, I renamed it because nobody has shown that the same symbol exists all around the world. And nobody has shown that it actually meant the same thing to all these cultures. Mm -hmm. So what I've done is I've renamed it the God self icon because what it is, it's almost like a yoga posture to explain to the viewer that in performing this pose, we are finding the God within. We are finding the soul within. And we're communion. We're, we're having communion with that soul. We're having communion with our higher self. We're transcending the twin sides of our physical existence in order to remember or recall our spiritual existence, in order to remember the God within us. And that's why I call it the God self icon. And so that's what this is. Um, and here are some examples from different parts of the world. Uh, up top, we have Peru um, in Afghanistan, Egypt and Colombia in the new world, Colombia. In the middle, we have uh, Italy, Lebanon, China and India. And again, you can see same posture, both arms outstretched, holding symmetrical objects in each hand, more or less symmetrical. On the bottom left, Nigeria, Spain, Iraq, and Greece. 
and they're obviously not spot on matches, but they all follow the same formula. And that formula again is um, an anthropomorphic figure, usually a God or goddess facing forward with both arms outstretched to the left and the right in a symmetrical pose and holding symmetrical objects in each hand. And this is the God self icon. And let's see if I have more. Yeah. Here's some more that I put together for an article I wrote uh, in my, on my website, on my richardcasaro.com website. Um, and again, these are the very same, it's the same symbolism that was used by different cultures. And in most cases, these cultures were very, very um, far spread uh, across continents, separated by oceans and so on and so forth. So that's the story really of the God self icon. Here's a, another group of photos of the God self icon. Um, on top, you can see Bolivia. That's the gate of the sun at Tiwanaku. Um, in Egypt, North America, the Indians, the North American Indians, various tribes, the Nez Perce and, and the uh, Navajo. Uh, in Sumer, you can see, you know, the God holding twin serpents. Um, I believe that's Gilgamesh in that symbol, in that photo. In the middle, Giraffe, Indonesia, Peru, Nigeria. And on the bottom, the Minoan civilization on Crete, Persia, Achaemenid Empire, um, India, the Hindus. And there on the far right bottom is Greece. That comes from Mycenae, um, which was an Indo-European culture in Peloponnese. So, are, yeah. are these symbols spanning thousands of years? These symbols go as far back as civilization goes. Uh, the lower right-hand symbol, that's from Mycenae in Greece. They were before the actual Greeks. They were before the, 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 what, we, the, the, what we call the Greek culture, Hellenistic Greek culture and the um, formative Greek culture. The Mycenaeans came before them. So this is uh, very, very ancient. Um, in India, the, uh, this comes from a cylinder seal right next to the Greece one in India. This comes from a cylinder seal. I believe it's from Mohenjo, Mo, uh, I always say this properly, Mohenjo-Daro, um, which was, I think, 2500 BC or thereabout. Um, Tiwanaku, Bolivia, in the upper left-hand corner. I mean, some scholars even claim that that goes back four, five, six thousand years. So, yeah, these, these go to the very beginning of civilization. And in many cases, they, they are from prehistory, where they can't even be dated because they're so old. And for people that are listening on iTunes or, or other audio platforms, I highly recommend that you go to YouTube because this is just incredible and, and amazing when you actually see it, you know, for yourself. Yeah, these are great. The, so, so the God, so the God self icon was kind of a secondary discovery, in addition to the triptych temple, um, that the pyramid. And this all shows to me, to, it proves to my satisfaction, to my own mind, that the pyramid cultures were all related in some way. Um, they may not have been in contact with each other, but it seemed to me that they all in, had inherited a greater body of wisdom from a more ancient culture. And the proof of that is in the triptych temples that they built and in the God self icons that they used throughout their cultures, which, and, and these triptych temples and these God self icons all point to this balance of opposites wisdom tradition. And as we saw in the earlier slide, scholars already admit 
that the main idea of these cultures is the balance of opposites. So it's just, it all snaps together beautifully. It, it just seems that the main, the, the cultures that built pyramids and triptych temples and God's, and used God's self icons were very high cultures. It's unfortunate when we talk about primitive civilizations because they were not primitive at all. They were very, very advanced. They may not have had the ability to fly in an airplane or um, may not have some of the uh, technological in terms of the computers and, uh, and the tall buildings and things that we have today. But they were psychologically much more advanced than we are. They were spiritually much more advanced. And that's what I think these symbols show, this architecture shows. And to me, the way I've always explained it is looking, pointing to these higher ages in the past, uh, the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age. I do believe that there's at least a kernel of truth to that idea uh, because I do see, when I look at these ancient cultures around the world, they were very, very advanced cultures. And we, on the other hand, are, in my opinion, and it's very sad to say this, but we are a very low base culture. Uh, you know, looking, just look around the world today, you know, and in the last hundred years, we've had two world wars. I mean, think about that concept, World War One. you know, followed by World War Two. I don't think it's difficult to see that we're living in a dark age. Uh, the violence, the anger, the, the, the feeling of insecurity and helplessness that so many people in the world feel. I mean, we live in the United States and in Europe and uh, we're so well off. I mean, so many of us think that we're poor, but we're not. We're rich in a very profound way. We have food on the table. We have, uh, you know, shelters. A lot of people in different parts of the world don't have that. They don't have that food. They don't have that shelter. So, you know, there's so much turmoil going on in other parts of the world that we're not really seeing in the news and in our television sets. So mm -hmm. I just see, I don't see a high culture when I look at the world today, but when I look at these uh, when you look at Egypt or in ancient China or in ancient India or Peru, the Inca and pre-Inca cultures, the Maya in Mexico, the Toltecs, the Olmecs in Mexico, you're seeing really high cultures. Um, and I don't see that today. So, yeah, I do believe that there's some type of a kernel of truth to this higher ages, the golden age in the past idea. Rich, can you take us back to when you were a, a young boy? Where did all this interest stem from? Do you have any early memories? Um, were you always interested in, in, in symbols and, and, and things like that? Always, yeah, always. My, I actually, my mother was very interested in archaeology, and she always had archaeology magazines, you know, National Geographic and archaeology books lying around. And that's, I guess, when I was 11, 12 years old, when I first started to be attracted to pyramids. Um, the idea that there were pyramids around the world just grabbed me, you know, I loved it. Um, and I wanted to know why I was, I felt like they were the most fascinating and mysterious structures in the world. Um, and I actually was interested in volcanoes too before that. But in, in retrospect, I realized that the shape of the volcano is very much a pyramidal shape. Yes. So there was like a part of me that knew that <laughs> I guess a part of me looked at volcanoes and was like, wow, that's a great shape. I love that. I was attracted to that shape. And then it switched over to pyramids, where, which is where it was supposed to be because I'm, I've not been interested in volcanoes since the third grade. So I guess um, you know, there was always a part of me inside that was attracted to this idea of pyramids around the world and why did they build them? What do they mean? What do they stand for? And uh, 
as I'm sitting here talking to you today, I feel like I still haven't really found what I need to find. There's something more about these pyramids. And I know I'm getting close in my research, and I, I really don't want to explain too much more here right now, but I am working on, on some new discoveries that I'm going to put forth in the coming years where I've, I've really put together some interesting connections, and I think I'm getting closer to understanding more of the mysteries of the pyramids, um, being a gateway, like I said, between the living and the dead. Wow. And so I'm going to be putting forth a lot more information about that in the coming years. Um, but uh, and I have a lot of proof for it, too. And I don't want to just put forward an idea. I'm really interested in backing up that idea with, uh, with evidence. And I'm getting a little bit frustrated with this so-called alternative uh, research community. And uh, I think that in the last several years, it's really become... Uh, very low and and very almost anything is possible and you know even the even the worst uh, YouTube videos and the worst ideas are, are seem to be accepted by the public and I'm moving more into scholarship I'm moving more into the direction of uh, you know wanting my ideas to be accepted by academia mm -hmm. and so I'm going to be putting out less information I'm going to be putting out um, information that's more generally accepted by scholars. That's really what I want to do. Um, so I'm focused on that right now. But uh, yeah, ever since I was a kid, I was interested in this stuff. When you do come out with this information, it would be great to have you back on so we could we could talk about those those new discoveries. I love it. Thanks for the invitation. That sounds great. And um, as you were talking about the volcano, I couldn't help but think about energy. And, you know, to us, you know, when, when there's an active volcano, the amount of energy, the force that comes out of that. But I also think about pyramids and there's that hidden energy, that amazing energy. So I think it's really cool that as a young, young boy, you like volcanoes. Now, you know, into adulthood, you're, 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 you're doing the discovery of pyramids and what they really mean. But in my, in the back of my mind, that was my first thought is, is the energy that they both have yeah. one hidden, one not. Mm -hmm. um, I did want to mention, I, I was on your Facebook page and it looks like you uh, came back from Greece around Mar sometime in March. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Greece is just such a great place to go. And there's so many ruins. Um, I've been there. I want to go back. Um, uh, it's just a matter of time and money. And it's really, Greece is at the center of my research right now. It's one of the countries at the center of my research right now. So I will be going back again soon. Um, and yeah, it was a fantastic trip. Tremendous uh, monuments there, ancient monuments, spiritual monuments. Um, yeah. I, say I saw you even hugged one. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the Helenicon Pyramid, yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. And the energy that's admitted, emitted from these structures is really incredible. If you're tuned into them, uh, you can really feel the energy, the vibrations that are coming from these. Even now, uh, thousands of years later, they still have something there about them that makes you feel um, spiritual, that makes you feel in connection with the true self within. Um, and if you know how to approach them, you can benefit from them. That's what I do on my tours. I, I show people how to interact with the monuments um, and that's really the key. That's why I go to these ancient places. I have a completely different person when I go to these ancient places. It shouldn't be that way. I should be able to take that back with me like a mantra, but it's difficult sometimes. But man, when I go back there, I reconnect very quickly and I just enter a different phase of being.
Um, so yeah, Greece was fantastic. Wow. And it sounds like that's going to be a part of your next uh, discovery. And we can't wait to, to learn more about that. Uh, I'm confident our, our, our viewers and our, and, and our listeners will, will benefit tremendously from this. I thank you, you know, for your time very much. I can't wait to follow you and, and, and put this out there. Um, but I do have, I do have one last question that I ask every guest and you kind of hinted toward it in, in your last, uh, um, statement there, but at the end, at the end of the day, when you're done with your work, you know, the 95 year old rich, um, what do you want your legacy to be? Wow. Uh, that's a tough question. I guess, um, I guess I'd, I'd love it for people to say he really opened my eyes. He really opened my, his reading his books opened my eyes to something that I didn't see before and that without his books I would never have known and I thank him for that and that that for me would be a fantastic thing that's all I want you know is to help people that's just that's always that's always been my nature I've always you know when I used to work in New York City when anybody would come to me with you know lost tourist or somebody that didn't speak English I always went out of my way to help them because I, I just felt it was my duty to do so even if it would make me late for a meeting or late for work, I, I would walk them to where they needed to be and I would draw maps and, you know, on the, where they, you have to do that. You have to look out for the other person um, because, hey, you know, the golden rule, you know, you treat others the way you would want to be treated. And that's missing, I think, to a large extent in the world today. And it's sad. And so, you know, part of my, part of, I love my research because I love the way it feels when I make discoveries and connections, but I also love showing people and, and I love the feedback from people when they say, wow, I, you know, I mean, I get so many emails every week um, from people that just, you know, flabbergasted and just thank you so much. And I saw your video, I just read your book or this article or, and I never knew that. And thank you. And I give lectures, you know, to different countries and, you know, the, the uh, feedback is always that enthusiastic kind of wide-eyed, wow. And that to me is it all. That's, that's it right there. That's the same feeling I get when I help somebody with their directions when they, where they need to go in New York City. You know, it's just you got to help people and you got to do the best you can by other people. And that's, you know, for me, the most important thing. Rich, if people want to reach you, what's the best way for them to connect? Um, I have richardcasaro.com, which is my website. Um, I've been very busy this year. I haven't been able to update it with new articles. Um, but I also have some social media accounts, but I've been going on social media less and less because I just don't have the time. Um, time has really become a factor for me this year. So I would say, yeah, richardcasaro.com is really my main hub. And uh, there's a contact button on there if anybody wants to reach out. And I also have articles on there, and you can also purchase my books on there. Richard Cassaro, uh, welcome to the American Real family. Thanks so much. You've been gracious, uh, so gracious with your time. Cannot wait to stay in touch and, and watch all that you do. Thank you so much, Roger. I appreciate the invitation, and it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. 
If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. And speaking of podcasting, our next course will be starting soon. So if you're interested in launching your own podcast, join me at Podcast Your Passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting, where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information.